Well, the words came in. Don't worry about it. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Those were the words that forever haunted after that Kermit A. Tyler. He was the one on duty back in 1941, Sunday morning, on a Hawaiian island of Oahu. The Army Air Force's first lieutenant on temporary duty, in fact, And when it was reported that there was a big blip on the radar screen, don't worry about it. They were pretty sure that they were just big B-17 bombers that were due at any time. And though this blip was 132 miles away, with time to respond in some way, shape, or form, don't worry about it. But you know the rest of the story. Instead, the blip on the radar screen was the first wave of two waves of 180 Japanese fighters with torpedoes, torpedo bombs, dive bombers, horizontal bombers that surprised, attacked Pearl Harbor and the island main airfields at 7.48 a.m., plunging the United States into World War II. Now, the Army Air Forces said it wasn't his fault. He wasn't charged with anything. They said he did nothing wrong. But what if is what always haunted him. What if I would have and could have given a heads up to everybody on the ground? The book of Revelation reveals God's final warning for mankind. And friends, I believe we need to sound the alarm. Not in an alarmist way, but in order to prepare people for the crisis that is impending. At a time when people say peace and safety, when they say don't worry about it. We are continuing a series called Hope in These Last Days. And we've been going through a number of topics. First, the coming crisis, anticipated or dreaded. We've covered that. Revival, genuine or counterfeit. We've covered that. Last time I spoke, it was shaken or sealed. And Pastor Hyman talked about the Laodicean church last week. And then this week, worship and the National Sunday Law. And then next week, close of probation, the seven last plagues, and then eventually after Doug Batchelor, heaven and eternity. Is it for real? And so that's a series that we have been going through. But the central issue that I want to talk about today is loyalty to God. Whom will you worship? Revelation 14, 7, we've looked at this verse before. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. And do what? Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. The issue throughout time has been worship. Whether it's been Baal or Amun-Ra, the god of the Egyptians, or Belmarduk, the god of the Babylonians, or Apollo, or Venus, or Zeus, the god of the Romans. Whom will you worship? 
has been the call. We see it again in Revelation chapter 9. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Two forms of worship. Whom we worship has everything to do with our salvation. And why does God deserve our worship? Very quickly here, Revelation 4.11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Like the song we just heard, Holy, 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 for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He is the creator. And secondly, the Ten Commandments. They give a command to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, as we sung about earlier. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And what are the two identifying characteristics of God's people in the last days? We've looked at that too, Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, all ten, and the faith of Jesus. They keep the commandments and the faith or testimony of Jesus. In the last days, in these last days, God is looking for a people that love God, whose faith fills their hearts and leads them to keep all ten of God's commandments. And what is the center of the great controversy? The law of God. Great Controversy 582 says this, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the, what is it? Law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah. In the Great Controversy, Lucifer went against God's law, and said that created beings are superior to the Creator, and they could judge for themselves between right and wrong, and that it wasn't necessary to obey. Follow your heart, perhaps. So the central issue is worship. Worship is at the heart of God's law, as we just saw, and the final struggle is over God's law. So this morning, this piece that we're going to look at, what will bring about this union of church and state? Well, we'll see here. Well, there's the, what are the events that will lead up to the union of church and state or a national Sunday law? That's what we're looking at today. And so we'll see here that Satan has two strategies for deception to make this happen. Strategy number one, Counterfeit revivals. We touched on that a little bit before. We'll look at it some more today. But working through apparent religious bodies and organizations to cause a counterfeit religious revival. And it will be big. And strategy number two, war, calamities, and natural disasters. And so we have a profile of the last days. We have the gospel being preached to the world, which creates a reaction from Satan. Before the latter rain and loud cries, Satan will bring a counterfeit revival. And then there'll also be calamity 
economic chaos, war, strife, and the list goes on. And so we see here in Revelation 13, verse 13 and 14, I want you to open your Bibles. There's a few verses I want us to actually see for ourselves in our own Bibles. And this is one of them, Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. We're in the last part of our Bibles, last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, chapter 13, and we're reading about the beast from the earth. And it says here in Revelation 13, verse 13, he performs great signs or miracles that even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. I hear some say, oh, that fire, that must be a nuclear bomb that goes off. How do we interpret Scripture? We compare Scripture with Scripture. So when is the first mention of fire in the Bible? Can you recall? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fiery sword. You remember the angel after Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden? And that angel is standing there with the fiery sword representing the presence of God. They're no longer able to go in. Next, we see fire, the burning bush, and Moses. Again, fire representing the presence of God. We see the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. Again, representing what? Presence of God. We have the Shekinah glory in the most holy place, representing the presence of God. We then see Elijah calling fire down from heaven, presence of God. We have tongues of fire in the book of Acts, speaking of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So this is a false presence of God. This is a false or counterfeit revival. And we read on, verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs or miracles which he was granted to do in sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And so we have this beast, this false religious leader, and we have this image to the beast, a type or counterfeit of. Anytime we see an image in Scripture, it's the opposite of. So here we have a type or a counterfeit, an opposite of the law of God. Opposite of the genuine. The image in Daniel 3 is opposite, you'll recall, of the genuine in the dream in Daniel chapter 2. All gold versus various metals. You remember? So in Revelation chapter 13, the image to the beast is not to Jesus. Sabbath is the sign of the symbol of our worship to Jesus. A call to worship the Creator who can recreate your heart. A symbol of righteousness by faith as we rest in our salvation in Him. But the devil has that all mixed up, doesn't he? Have you ever heard someone say, oh, you go to church on Sabbath. That's legalistic. That's righteousness by works. But friends, it's just the opposite. How so, you might say? When we keep Sabbath, we rest from our labors, don't we? Just like Christ rested after the cross in completed salvation. 
When we rest every Sabbath, we are resting in the power and grace that redeemed the world. We are resting from our work and accepting His work on the cross. So Sabbath is a symbol of rest that connects us to Eden lost, to the cross, and to the coming of Christ. Because Sabbath reminds us of the day when God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. So I rest in completed creation. I rest in completed redemption. And I rest in a God who is going to complete the work at end time. That's the Sabbath. You might recall Abel believed in righteousness by faith because he did what God said. Cain believed in righteousness by works because he did what felt right to him in his own heart. So if I accept man's work in place of the Sabbath itself and accept a counterfeit in place of the truth, then I'm accepting the works of man, the offering of Cain, and doing what I want to do, and that's righteousness by works, not righteousness by faith. So Sunday is legalism because it's doing what man commands, not what God commands. Sabbath is a symbol of grace because I rest in his love and his care. So in Revelation 13, the image, the counterfeit Sabbath, that is an image made to man in contradistinction to the genuine, authentic Sabbath that God's given. And why do so many keep the counterfeit? It says in the text, because of miracles and wonders and signs that have been performed in those churches as a result of the false revival. Where will all this lead? Turn with me just a few pages over, maybe just one page, to Revelation chapter 16, verse 14. It's in the sixth plague, and we'll study the plagues next week. But Revelation chapter 16, 14, we read this. For they are spirits of demons performing signs or miracles, there it is again, which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And in verse 16, it talks about that battle as Armageddon. So what's happening? So God's work is going forward, and as the latter rain is being poured out and the loud cry is being given... Before it reaches its fullness, remember it's a climax, it's building, and before it reaches its fullness, Satan begins a counterfeit religious revival in an attempt to bring the entire world, this verse just said, into a single unity at a time of conflict and strife and calamity. And so the devil brings about this threefold union, Protestantism, Catholicism, or Catholicism, excuse me, and paganism, or spiritualism. And they're unified under a call for a single day of worship. How does he do that? False miracles. Signs to bring the whole world to the battle of Armageddon, it says, as we just read. We've already seen false miracles in Revelation chapter 13. We saw them here in Revelation chapter 16. One other place I want to point you to is Revelation chapter... Oh, I should have advanced that. Revelation chapter 19, verse... 
Is it 14? I don't think I'd change the 14 to 20. I think we're going to go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. So don't pay attention to the screen on that one. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs or miracles in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Who was it who received the mark of the beast? And why did they receive the mark of the beast? And what deceived them? Because they accepted the false what? False miracles. Look at this quotation from Great Controversy 590. It says, The great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils, the calamity, all the problems going on in the world. The class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandments is a perpetual reproof to transgressors. Continuing on. Continuing on, there it is. It will be declared that men are offending God by the violation of the Sunday Sabbath. That this sin has brought calamities which will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced. And that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment, thus destroying reverence for Sunday, are troublers of the people, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. Why will Adventists be regarded in this way? Another quote here from Great Controversy 589. While appearing to the children of men as great physician who can heal all their maladies, he, Satan, will bring disease, disaster, until populous cities are reduced to ruin and desolation. Even now, he is at work in accidents, calamities by sea and by land, in great conflagrations and fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms. So what's going to happen to the populous cities? They're reduced to ruin and desolation. But what does he do? He appears to be the great physician. On the one hand, he's working a false revival and miracles. And on the other hand, he's destroying cities. As we've just read, even now he's at work in all of these calamities. And then as we finish off this quote, we read, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes, in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. What will eventually happen? Well, we have here in Great Controversy again, 592, even in free America. Oh, it's not going to happen in America. It could never happen in America. We're founded on freedom and religious freedom. That's how we, we started out. Even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor. What's public favor? Popularity. To secure votes, to get elected. They will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. They'll yield to what? The popular demand. In fact, we saw this happen just last year, didn't we? All of a sudden, marriage was redefined 
by a small group of people because of the popular demand. Where does the demand come from? It comes from a dictator, right? No. The demand comes from the people. Where do we find this in the Bible, you may ask? Well, it's back in Revelation verse thir- or chapter 13, I'm sorry, where we looked already. And there's a particular word that is used. It's a very interesting word, and Ellen White picks up on this. And you have it in various translations. It's a little bit different. I think the most clear translation is the King James Version, which is here on the screen. It says, And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast. Who are them that dwell on the earth? Who are the they? That's the people, right? So this is not some dictator. This is not some big brother. But even in America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand of the people for law enforcing the Sunday. And so I'm going to attempt to break down a chart here. Because on the one hand, you have a threefold union Catholicism, Protestantism, and spiritualism. And they unite because of false revivals in Catholicism. They unite because of false revivals in Protestantism. They unite because of false revivals in spiritualism. They unite because there are miracles in Catholicism. There's miracles in Protestantism. There are miracles in spiritualism. And they unite based on the false doctrines of immortality of the soul. And essentially what happens is they say, we need a common day of rest and worship to bring us all together in unity. Why? Because on the other side of our chart, happening at the same time, we have war, terrorism, natural disasters, economic calamity, famines, all of these things that are saying we need to get back to God. We've lost God's favor. We need to unite. They're happening simultaneously. They're climaxing simultaneously. And so there's a popular demand. And what will the popular demand be? Only if we had a common day of rest and worship. Only if everyone were united. Only if everyone were worshiping together. Let's drop these differences. Now, sure, Baptists will still be Baptists, and Pentecostals will still be Pentecostals. Hindus will still be Hindus. It doesn't mean that all Muslims will become Catholic. It's not at all. But under convenience, because of a great crisis that is occurring, and because miracles are going on and being worked in all of these various churches and religious bodies, they will say, we will accept a single day of common rest and worship to worship God in the context of our own personalities, yes, and in the context of our own religion, but let's come together on a single day of worship. Can't we at least do that? And so we have this popular demand 
that leads to legislators influenced to pass an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, perhaps. We have a national Sunday law, and eventually we have an international Sunday law. From the outcry of the people, as both of these things are happening, false revivals, counterfeit miracles, false doctrine, and all the disaster, and we have to come together. And the cry is from the bottom up, not the top down. And so sometimes you hear, I hear their meeting, and I heard just recently that perhaps the, the Pope, the last visit he made, they were talking about his encyclical and how they're gathering together to try to enforce Sunday legislation and that type of thing. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I wasn't there, so I can't verify for sure if it happened or not. And could it be that the devil is setting that up so everything is ready and primed to go when all these other things become fulfilled and the people start to cry out? Certainly could. But ultimately, what's going to push it over the top is the cry from the people. They shall make an image to the beast. So we have here in Great Controversy 588, through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays a foundation for spiritualism, and we certainly see that today, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome, and we see that happening today. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf. Who is that now? The Protestants. And they'll be what? Foremost. So we should expect to see mighty miracles sweeping through Protestant churches. We should expect to see some of those churches packed. We should expect to see thousands going to those churches. Oh, I want to go to their church to learn church growth. I want to learn how to really do a service and pack the house. You may learn church growth, but you may learn something else too. And maybe it's not the kind of growth that God wants. I ask you, if Constantine were having a seminar on church growth, how to pack the church in the fourth century, would you go? I better get back to this quotation. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the Gulf to get, grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. So what happens in this time of crisis where there is religious revival, the union takes place? And it's not that denominational differences are dropped, but rather that you maintain your denominational differences, but you unite on two points. The immortality of the soul, which opens up for false miracles and spiritualism, and Sunday sacredness. That's all they need. And I imagine they'll come to us as these calamities are happening, as the world is falling apart, as revival seems to be taking place in their churches and their packed, they will come to us. And I imagine them saying, we all can worship. Why are you guys so different? Why are you so strange and odd? Look at the war. Look at the conflict. Look at the strife. Couldn't you 
set aside the first day of the week with the rest of society to seek God in prayer. Are you not a people of prayer? Why don't you open your churches for prayer and revival that day? Look what's happening in us. This is obviously the moving of the Spirit of God. Look at the tongues. Look at the prophecy. Look at the miracles. Why don't you go along? But Seventh-day Adventists recognize that this is all a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, a counterfeit revival, not dealing with the fruits of the Spirit, but with sensationalism, signs and wonders. We want to be united, but we want to be united under God's truth. We believe in the true ecumenical movement of John 17, 17. It says, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. We believe God will have a true unity movement of all faiths and creeds that he is leading together that unite under the true banner of his word and under the banner of the Sabbath before he comes. We don't accept the fact that signs and wonders will bring people together in this kind of unity. So maybe you're thinking, what will ultimately happen? Well, we'll have increasing magnitude of Sunday law enforcement. We've talked about crescendo. Those of you that are musicians, that means when I played timpani in the orchestra, I started soft and I got loud. That was a crescendo. Now it goes the other way around, I understand. But this is where we're starting out small and it grows and grows and grows and grows. And the same is done, not just with the war, calamity, and strife, not just with revival, but with Sunday law enforcement. It will be a crescendo, just like the loud rain and the loud cry. It'll be a crescendo, just like the shaking. So these are not events on a calendar, but they begin and gain greater force over time. Are you with me? I believe it's the same with the National Sunday Law. First, the law is passed, but the penalties get tighter and tighter and tighter. First phase, negative tide of public opinion. Negative tide of public opinion. We read in Great Controversy 592, those who honor the Bible Sabbath will be denounced as enemies of law and order, as breaking down the moral restraints of society, causing anarchy and corruption, and calling down the judgments of God upon the earth. Their conscientious scruples will be pronounced obstinacy, stubbornness, and contempt of authority. They will be accused of disaffection toward the government. So the tide of public opinion turns against the Sabbath keepers. And notice the clear language. It's declared that they are stubborn, that they don't go along with authority. They're accused of disaffection. So that's the first, the tide of public opinion going against. The second, they're offered rewards or punishment. We see some of this in World War II as well. But that's also what Nebuchadnezzar did, isn't it? If you interpret the dream, I will give you rewards and great wealth. But if you don't interpret the dream, I'll cut off your head and then you'll really have trouble then. 
rewards or punishment. I won't start out that drastic for us at this phase just yet. But again, in World War II, if, if you went along, you had greater food rations. You had nicer clothes for your kids. You could have shoes for your kids. You could have vacations, and the list goes on. Great Controversy says, The dignitaries of the church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor Sunday. They will be threatened with fines and imprisonment, and some will be offered positions of influence and others reward and advantages as inducements to renounce their faith. I didn't advance that, did I? Sorry, there it is. Did you get the picture? Strong coercion. Offering rewards or punishment. I can't help but think of this verse in Jeremiah 12, verse 5. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? If you sell out for the Sabbath today and play the Judas today, how are you possibly going to stand in the crisis? Oh, I'm going to stand then. But you don't stand today. You're unfaithful in your tithe today. No amount of money will bribe me in the time of crisis. But I need to pay my child's school tuition. So I'm unfaithful in my tithe today. Step by step, they yielded. God gives us, in his gracious mercy, tests today. Not because the test in itself is so important, but because the character that we develop in following him is important. Just like the children's story, the little things. And when you follow him today in financial matters, you'll follow him tomorrow in financial matters. But when you're unfaithful and tithe today, you will yield to the bribes that they offer you then. Because the love of money and lack of faith will be deep within your heart. God invites us today in his graceful love and mercy to be faithful to the tests he gives us today so we can triumph with him tomorrow. Nothing will get me to give up Christ, buying and selling for food. Honestly, I would never give up my faith for food. Where are those 17 chocolate eclairs? You get the point? If I cannot control my appetite today, if there never was a secret told that I couldn't keep, Did you hear? Did you hear about so-and-so? I can't believe it. If I haven't learned to be discreet today, will I be one of those betrayers in the time of trouble that's coming? See, this message is not merely for people in the future. This message is for you and for me today. It's a call to be faithful in our stewardship to Jesus. It's a call to be so in Christ that my body is given to him. 
that I control my lusts and my passions today. Because if there's something you can't control, the devil's going to play on that. He's going to trip you up on that thing. You can't control your passions? I'll tell you something. The devil's going to play on that. And he will deal with you when the crisis breaks. Surrender your passions to him today. Surrender your body to him today. Surrender your appetites to him today. Surrender today to this living Christ. In your finances, be faithful to this living Christ. Be faithful to your friends. When they tell you something, don't go babbling to every person that you see that walks around. In the name of Christian sanctity. Oh, Mary told me this, and I know I shouldn't say anything, but I just love her so much. I just have to tell you, will you promise not to tell anyone else? How many things have gone through the whole church with that little phrase? You just have to promise not to tell anyone else. Before you know it, the whole church knows, but they've all promised not to tell anyone else. If you love that person so much, keep your mouth shut. Learn what to say and what not to say. Because there will be a time that what you say is absolutely critical. During the days of communism, one slip of a word would put a friend in prison. They knew about how to be discreet. Ask God to give you a sanctified tongue. So there will be a negative tide of public opinion. Secondly, as this crescendo builds, they'll be offering rewards or punishment. Thirdly, an economic boycott. We read about this in Desire of Ages 121 and 122. In the last great conflict of the controversy with Satan, those who are loyal to God will see every earthly support cut off because they refuse to break his law and obedience to earthly powers. They'll be forbidden to buy or sell. No buying or selling. We will learn dependence on God. Isaiah 33, verse 16. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. What a day. Totally dependent on him. So today, if you have to pray about some tuition money for school, thank God that you're learning to lift the weights of faith. Does anybody here like to lift weights? I like to lift them to try and stay in shape. You'll never know it, would you? But that's okay. But you know, you don't bench press 285 pounds on the first day, first try. You have to begin with those little 10-pound weights, right? So God gives you those little trials today. Thank his name for those little trials that are preparing and building spiritual muscle. So when that day comes, we can be totally dependent on him. Last, well not last, next to last phase is imprisonment. Great Controversy 608. As the defenders of truth refuse to honor the Sunday Sabbath, some of them will be thrust into prison. Some will be exiled. Some will be treated as slaves. Slavery will return. And then the last, number five, pronouncement of death. Great Controversy 604. All who refuse compliance will be visited with the civil penalties and it will finally be declared, finally be declared, that they are deserving of death. So it begins 
with a negative tide of public opinion. Then they're offered rewards or punishment. Then there's an economic boycott. Nobody can buy or sell. Then finally, imprisonment. And then ultimately, death. Scientists of Great Eastern University, one of those Ivy League schools, were doing some experiments on lambs. You may not like the experiments, and maybe you've heard Mark Finley share this, and I'll probably share it in our meetings coming up again. But it makes a good point, I believe. They were doing experiments on lambs, and they would put them in a pen with about a dozen feeding stations. And at each of these feeding stations, they attached a little electrode with which they could shock the lamb as it was feeding. And so they put this cute little lamb in the pen, and it's running around, and all of a sudden, it goes to a feeding station, and it gets a shock. And it panics, and it runs away, and it finds a different feeding station. And again, it gets shocked and panics and runs away to a different feeding station and a different feeding station until eventually this little lamb is shocked at every single one of the feeding stations in the pen. And this lamb goes to the middle of the pen and starts shaking and falls over and dies from too much stress. They wanted to see how much this little lamb could take. Then they took the twin of that little lamb. They put the twin in the same pen with the same feeding station. It's going to do the same thing. The only thing they did different was they put mother in the pen as well. And so when this little lamb went to the first feeding station, he got shocked and he started to panic and he ran away and he went over to mama. And he found the mother lamb and it went ba-ba. And the mama lamb said ba-ba. And this little lamb went back to the same feeding station to eat some more. Got shocked again. Lifted his head up. Looked over to Mama. Ba-ba. Mama said, ba-ba. This is where the experiment breaks down. We don't know what they're saying. <laughs> Eventually that lamb after they shocked it over and over and over, continued to feed from that station because its mother was in the pen. That second lamb had a place to run. And the shocks of life did not cause her to shake or to collapse, but to continue through. In the coming crisis... It's not about how strong you are, but how strong he is. Perhaps somebody here has been going through some real trials in life, some real heartache, some disappointment. You've been shocked at this feeding station and shocked at that feeding station. You've been shocked at school or at work. Things didn't go as you wished. You didn't get the grades that you were hoping for. Maybe you've been shocked in some relationship that you've been investing in. It's not worked out and it's ended badly. Maybe you feel isolated and alone. You've been shocked. Maybe even here in this church, things have not gone well for you and you've been shocked. 
And you came here this morning wondering if you were even going to hang in there because you've been shocked so much. Maybe your health is troubling you. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, in the shocks of life, he is there. Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And another verse I love, Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget I dare you to find a mother, but surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands, he says. And every minor shock that he allows us, he doesn't send those shocks, but in every minor shock that he allows us to have today, it's because he is helping us to run to him more quickly. He's helping us to depend on him more fully. He's helping us to find grace and peace and strength in him. In Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus, there is no way that the shocks of life can destroy you. You don't have to worry about the coming time of trouble as long as you are sheltered in his arms, as long as you trust in him. Dear Lord, you are a friend worth having. In the trials of life, in the shocks of life, you are there. And Father, sometimes we've gotten pretty upset. We've fallen apart when things have happened to us. But oh Lord, we long so much to allow our trials, like that little lamb, to draw us to you. And Lord, we really long to know you better. Father, we do not live in fear. We live in hope and confidence. And so, Father, we would pray this morning that you would send us from this place with hearts filled with your love, your grace, your goodness, and your courage. Help us to know that you are our best friend that you hold our hand, and that in the conflict to come, you are there by our side. And you are going to get us through. Lord, we think of ourselves and we know our weakness. We look to you and we thank you for your strength. Thank you in Jesus' name that we are secure. In Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.